Welcome to another exciting episode of The Nuclear View, a weekly podcast of the National Institute for Deterrent Studies, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to think deterrence. The views of the guests are their own. Welcome back to another episode of The Nuclear View. Of course, this week, Jim is on vacation, and we asked one of our distinguished senior fellows, Dr. Kerry Karchner, to join us because we wanted to talk about arms control and nonproliferation on The Nuclear View. And I, do I even need to say, of course, I'm Adam Lowther, and with us, as always, is Curtis McGiffin. And we're going to talk about a topic that is near and dear to both Curtis and Carrie's hearts. So, you know, you're laughing, Curtis, but uh, Carrie, you spent, you know, most of your career doing arms control, nonproliferation work in the State Department. And so you are probably one of the foremost experts on this. And in the last week, there's been some significant developments with the Russian Duma. And then there was, you know, the timing. And if you looked at, you know, they withdrew from CTBT or they allowed the Russian state to withdraw, they voted on it. And then of course, you know, if you read the headlines, the United States conducted a nuclear test on the same day that the Russians did that, which is a bit misleading but we wanted to talk about those issues and about the future of arms control because we're we're in a very, very challenging time. Of course, I should have let you say this sooner. Thanks for joining us on the Nuclear Review, Carrie. You're <laughs> Curtis, as always, our comic relief. Uh, so, gents. Well, I don't get a vacation like Jim does, so. Uh, I <laughs> I know, I know. We're just here slaving away in the salt mines, as always. Uh, so, Carrie, let me, you know, normally Curtis kicks it off, but I want to give it to you as this week's distinguished guest. So, as you've been watching and paying attention to everything that's been going on, what is your take on recent developments, you know, what's happened in the past year, and then sort of where we're going? Okay, yeah, I'd be happy to address those. Uh, uh, just let me provide a little more context for, for my background in the issues, which is serving as the senior State Department representative to the START Treaties uh, Joint Compliance and Inspection Commission for almost eight years before moving to be the senior State Department representative to the ABM Treaty Standing Consultative Commission. So I spent a year, two years, arguing missile defense, arguing, you know, possible re revisions, amendments to the ABM treaty before finally concluding that we, that we had to withdraw from that treaty. Um, and I, I had a background in compliance evaluation and compliance analysis, having written the first compliance report on Russian compliance with the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty. And just... So, you know, where I'm coming from, I, I am one of those people who believes that it is important for the U.S. to pursue, in good faith, arms control and nonproliferation. But I think there's smart ways to do it. 
And I think it needs to be done with our eyes wide open, you know, and that means we can't uh, turn a blind eye to Russian noncompliance behavior, to Russian violations. We have to stand up for, for that and we have to respond to that. And I, I firmly believe that Russian disrespect and noncompliance with our arms control treaties has led to the dismantling of those, those treaties and the unraveling of that regime. And I think we need to be clear about who's responsible for the unraveling of that regime. And it is not the United States, which I think is a narrative that we see in the arms control community. Um, this is completely a Ru the Russians doing this. So, um, yes, I followed the recent developments closely. I was watching with dismay as the, the Russians gradually backed out of the, I, uh, the INF Treaty and then the START Treaty um, and START II. I mean, the New START Treaty. And that has left us in a really precarious position. And the arms control community right now is having an important conversation about what to do about that. And the options that they are considering are more U.S. concessions and more U.S., uh, you know, trying to seize the moral high ground. That is not going to work. That is not going to bring the Russians back to the negotiating table. Carrie, Carrie, let me stop you right there for a second. Sure. Are you trying to tell me uh, that hope is not a strategy? Is that what I hear you say? <laughs> hope is not a strategy. Seizing the moral high ground is not a strategy. But having a position to negotiate from strength, if I could revive a Reagan era uh, statement. Uh, my, the question I have for my colleagues in the arms control community, many of whom I've served with and many of whom I have a great deal of esteem and respect for, is what negotiating leverage do we have to get the Russians interested in any kind of an arms control dialogue at this point? We have almost no negotiating leverage. Because we have we have a very slow pace to st strategic nuclear modernization, we have no plans to build up uh, substrategic nuclear weapons, we have no plans to revisit NATO's nuclear posture. I mean, what what is the negotiating leverage that we have to bring the Russians back to the arms control negotiating table? Yeah, there was a uh, Secretary of Defense who I will not name because he was often unpopular, who said not too many years ago, weakness is provocative. And, you know, it's one of those things that, I, you know, it's it's spot on. And it, it almost appears to me that that we're purposefully pursuing a strategy of weakness, because if we're weak, then we'll be perceived as harmless. But in reality, that to me is a, you know, that's a strategy of naivete that is, you, you know, it's a historical. I don't know how many times we have to learn this history lesson, but when yeah. you tease a dictator, you don't incentivize reciprocal restraint. You whet their appetite for so more. You, you don't buy peace for our time. That doesn't work. No, <laughs> 
Oh, okay. All right. You have to negotiate from a position of strength. <laughs> and and I, I, want, I want to mention the historical precedent that I think we should be thinking really hard about. And that is the 1979 NATO dual track decision. Okay. Let me provide a little historical context for what was happening in the late 1970s. The Soviets had begun a massive uh, deployment of SS-21 and 23 missiles, ground-launched and cruise-launched ballistic missiles uh, that ranged all the capitals of Western Europe in, in a 15-minute launch to, to target window. And what the Soviets had done effectively was seize escalation dominance in the European theater. And NATO was alarmed about it and had a lengthy deliberation process, which, of course, is what a multilateral organization is going to engage in. But in 1979, they made the bold decision to pursue a dual track strategy. And what the first track was begin deploying their own nuclear weapons as a counter to the Soviet buildup. The second track was to simultaneously pursue a diplomatic option which the Reagan administration began implementing and, and uh, President Reagan ultimately achieved a zero INF outcome, which, which was codified in the INF Treaty, which came as a surprise to all his detractors in the, in the arms control community. Um, and we were able to draw down uh, those INF missiles. We deployed the Glickham and the Pershing and the Russians uh, did likewise until they began violating the INF Treaty uh, later. But um, the only reason we were able to achieve such a dramatic reduction in, in disarmament and in nuclear weapons is because we had built up the negotiating leverage yeah. to do so. I don't know if NATO now has the political will to, to engage in a new uh, dual track decision, but I think we do. I think NATO needs to reconsider its nuclear posture. It needs to reconsider its decision to not deploy nuclear weapons to new NATO territories. I think that issue needs to be completely reopened. Uh, and for those countries that are new to NATO that are up for hosting uh, deployments of U.S. nuclear capabilities, then I think we need to seriously think about that. And we need to ramp up our strategic nuclear force modernization, but also I think we need to start deploying new nuclear weapons for the sake of under, underwriting our extended nuclear deterrence, which is in jeopardy, for the sake of shoring up the nuclear non-proliferation treaty which the, Ukraine, the, the Russian attack on Ukraine has done serious damage to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. And I know the nuclear non-proliferation community is actively trying to downplay that damage. But you cannot escape the fact that Russia attacked a country who had voluntarily given up a substantial nuclear capability. It was latent, yeah. but uh, still... Now, my, my argument to my nonproliferation and arms control friends and colleagues is what country now is going to be willing to give up their nuclear weapons, having seen what happened to Ukraine? You know, yeah. Taiwan and South Korea have got to be reconsidering their one-time nuclear programs. 
Oh, for um, sure. And, um, you know, any country that we want to coerce to, to give up their nuclear weapons by North Korea, like North Korea and Iran's aspiring program, they, they have no incentive what to do that. So ever now that Russia has completely torn to shreds the 1994 Budapest Memorandum in which they promised to respect Ukraine's sovereignty. They promised not to threaten Ukraine with nuclear weapons. Yeah. And yeah. they promised to, to help assure you know, Ukraine's territory. So the, the Russians have completely torn that to shreds. And what other country now is going to have faith in the nuclear arms control and proliferation regimes? What other country is going to have faith in, in our assurances to protect them? Anyways, I think well, those things are what needs to be thought through. Curtis, you had some other thoughts. I mean, you yeah. were pretty hopped up about the uh, recent report on Chinese military yeah. capabilities. So what say you, Curtis? Well, I appreciate that. And Carrie, it's always good to see you here um, and and be a part of us. I've always learned so much from you every time I listen. Um, I would say that uh, – the, the challenge here, is, is, as I see it, uh, and to sort of piggyback on your argument, is that we have to transfer the burden of fear upon the adversary. Just as we did in the Reagan era, when it became, when a, a six or seven minute uh, uh, attack cycle became intolerable to Gorbachev, he decided it was time to negotiate. And so Reagan's idea of build up to build down uh, sort of had some had some some real value in that. And that treaty lasted for a lot of years. And as you said, until the uh, until the Russians began to to violate the treaty. And what we never really talk about is why were the Russians violating the treaty? Um, and, and, and there's a lot of you know, speculation. My guess is it's because it was no longer meeting their national interests. But they were not interested in being the pariah that would terminate. They figure we'll cheat until we can't get away with that anymore. And then the Americans will do the right thing and they will terminate the, the treaty and we will get to take credit for not terminating the treaty. Right. So and, and, and so we, we did that because I think to President Trump's point at the time is we can't be in a treaty by ourselves. Yeah. And I would argue that Right now in the new start, we are essentially in a treaty by ourselves. Uh, when you have one side that is is doing, uh, if you've, and Carrie, I know you're familiar with the work that that uh, Mark Schneider's been doing, and and uh, uh, you know, in, in his analysis on what the Russians are likely doing, because we don't know, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, and we haven't really known for three years since we haven't done verification since you know, since COVID launched in in March of 2020. So um, I think these are a number of issues. And one of the things that I found very fascinating is, is uh, two weeks ago um, at the time of this recording, um, there was a a study that came out on the strategic posture committee report. Uh, And one of the things that it said, it was very interesting was that, um, that, that America needs to prepare for um, a, a, a cycle of time, my word's not theirs, of a world without any nuclear arms treaties. 
And what does that mean? And, and, and I would argue that this is something that is, is must happen because um, as you already stated so eloquently, we don't have any negotiating leverage. So there is nothing to bring them towards us. And I would suspect that even if we decided to conciliate and give more, I, I, I don't know how that would bring, even bring them into a, uh, into an arms control agreement. And so um, the answer is going to be to the, to the chagrin of all of these arms control people who make a lot of money swimming in this ecosystem um, is that there's little work for them to do because their adversaries are not interested in talking to them. And so if you want to get back into the business of arms control, we have to figure out, and actually we know how to do it. We have to be willing to build up in order to build back down again. Uh, and that is we've got to transfer the burden of fear off of our shoulders and onto theirs. That's my thoughts. Yeah, I totally, totally agree. Let, let me ask you something, Carrie. Sort of my take on why the arms control community does what it does is, you know, they often complain about the military industrial complex, but I think they have their own industrial complex. Cause if you really think about it, every DOE lab has a arms control and nonproliferation organization. And NSA has it. Uh, DOE has it. Um, if it, you know, DOD has it, you've got all the arms control organizations out there that exist for the sake of arms control. Then you've got, there are contractors that support that. There are foundations that support it. It's literally the arms control industrial complex. And Absent advocating arms control, they have no, you know, reason for purpose. There's, they're, they're a one trick pony that can only advocate one thing. And then there's, you know, there's the Monterey Institute and there's academic programs. And, you know, I don't think they see the irony of the fact that you have these university programs that the only thing they do is advocate for one position. And they don't see that that's fundamentally antithetical to what a university is supposed to do, that you're a policy advocate for one narrow position. And that's what they teach. So I wonder, can we ever actually get good policy and good strategy because arms control and nonproliferation has nothing to do with what's in the United States' interest. It has everything to do with what's in the interest of arms control advocates. Am I wrong? Am I reading this or misreading this? Or maybe I'm being too harsh? I agree with everything you say, except that I would say arms control and nonproliferation are important tools or can be important sure. tools of U.S. national security, but only under the condition in which those tools are subordinate to U.S. national security objectives and not the ends in themselves, which is where I part company with the arms control and disarmament community where, where the, so for example, I had a lot of experience in, in the State Department arms control community where it was very clear 
that the metric of success was the number of agreements that were reached. Yeah. And I was often in the position in the internal decision-making process where somebody said, we have got to make this agreement and we need an agreement. And it doesn't matter what the agreement says, as long as we get an agreement. So, so the, the ambassador has something to sign. And I would say, wait, wait just a minute. Is this a, is, are the terms of this agreement supportive of U.S. national security interests? In fact, I remember some very specific occasions when I was the State Department representative and Mark Schneider was the Office of Secretary of Defense representative. And in some, in some delegation proceedings in Geneva, Switzerland, Mark and I were in full agreement on the need for our agreements to serve U.S. national security interests and not just be things that we sign for the sake of their own achievement. So that's, I think arms control and disarmament are really important tools, but they have got to be subordinated to the U.S. national security interests, meaning they have to support those interests and they have to be judged in terms of their effectiveness in supporting those agreements. So, Kerry, I I I, uh, I hear where you're coming from. So, so let me ask your your reaction to this. So, this is a uh, an excerpt from the 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 commission report. It says that Russia has either violated or failed to comply with nearly every major arms control treaty or agreement to which the United States is or a party. These include the conventional arms armed forces in Europe. Treaty, the Presidential Nuclear Initiatives, the Budapest Memorandum, the Helsinki Accords, Open Skies Treaty, the INF, and most recently, New Start. Not listed in there is um, the Chemical Warfare Convention, the Biological Warfare Convention, uh, the likelihood of the uh, Threshold Test Ban Treaty. Now they're le- now they're leaving the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. Uh, Russian actions. I'll go back to the to the text here. Russian actions clearly demonstrate that its goal is not strategic stability as the United States understands it, especially given its apparent willingness to undermine nuclear arms control and their agreements. I would argue that the commission, the bipartisan commission, really sort of nailed this idea that we don't define these activities the same way they do perceive them, understand them, whatever adjective you want to use. And so when we say, um, um, and, and again, I'm not to take issue with it, I'm hoping you can explain it to me because I'm just not, I'm just not there yet. Where have we had a benefit in any treaty that the adversary on the other side has cheated on, uh, even to the point where we've tolerated the cheating and still said that it's in our national interests to have that agreement or to abide by that agreement, et cetera, et cetera. There have been periods of time when I have been confident that the Russians were complying with treaties. But again, I emphasize periods of time. <laughs> so, so yes. So, for example, the START Treaty, and I assessed the compliance of the Russians with the START Treaty. I was responsible for that. And uh, the Russians were, for for a good many years, in full compliance with everything we we wanted out of the the START Treaty. 
Um, my understanding is that was also true for New, for New Start. The, the, the Russians were in general compliance. There's a couple of caveats that I need to mention. The first one is um, it's sometimes hard to determine compliance because the terms of the treaty can be vague and ambiguous and subject to alternative interpretations. It can be hard to find a country in non-compliance also because um, there are bureaucratic interests in the United States government that don't want to rock the boat of a relationship. And so we'll, we'll fight any, any uh, effort to find the Russians in, in non-compliance. But we have mechanisms for enforcing compliance and we don't make good use of those. So um, the, I, my theory of the Russian violation of INF is because they figured we weren't going to do anything about it. And, and so, um, in fact, I, I personally was amazed when the U.S. government came out with such a hardline position on INF treaty compliance, because that was not characteristic of the bureaucracy to do that. Um, after so much time working these issues in the government, I finally made a list of all the reasons that the bureaucracy would cite for not finding the Russians in, in, in violation of a treaty. And it's a pretty long list, but there are definitely, uh, to Adam's point, there's definitely a strong bias against finding somebody in non-compliance. Well, Carrie, you got to write that book. You got to write that book with that list. <laughs> Well, I think, think Susan Cook wrote a report. Susan Cook wrote a report a year, a couple of years ago, for and for Keith Payne's shop on compliance issues, and she, I think, may have borrowed from my list. For, oh, for, I think I read that report. Yeah, I remember that one. So, do you think that the Russians? Because the way I I read the Russians, the Chinese, the North Koreans, it's, it's pretty simple. And, and that we don't act this way because we have a luxury they do not. And that luxury is that we're more powerful and richer than they are. And so, therefore, it's almost like when you have children and your children break stuff and you say, oh, little Johnny, don't do that. And then you go and you fix it and you don't make the kids pay for it. It's sort of similar in the fact that the Russians – will do whatever's in their own interest. They only follow their interest. And so when, you know, during prior to the signing of INF, they had, you know, theater advantage over the us in Europe, that was great. And then when we created, so that was tactical advantage. And then when we employed tactical nuclear weapons that created strategic advantage for us over them because we were shooting at much shorter distances and we called it tactical, but really it would, it would be a regime ending strike. So therefore the Russians do what a logical Russian would do. They get rid of the threat to them by signing INF and, and then they hold the INF because they fear they'll lose that you know, that advantage again. And then when the Russians say, well, geez, the Americans are fielding F-35s and they have F-22s and they've got, you know, they've got low observable cruise missiles and they've got all these things that we can't field. Our only option 
is to build more nuclear weapons because we have to counter their conventional advantage with a nuclear capability. And so therefore they say, well, we got to violate INF to do that. And then much like both you and Curtis said, it's that dance. And the Chinese, you know, the Chinese have said, well, I mean, we're inferior to begin with. So why would we ever talk about nuclear weapons when we have superiority? We still don't want to talk about nuclear weapons treaties because we just don't do that. And the whole time the Americans are sitting there patting everybody on the head saying, it's okay, don't worry about it. You know, but they never actually understand that those aren't sweet little kids running around who are just making mistakes. Well, those are those are nefarious, you know, people that want to cause you great harm. Early in the era of arms control theorizing in the 1960s, a, a school of thought arose that said we need to use arms control negotiations to raise the Russian learning curve <laughs> yeah. on nuclear deterrence. Okay, so there were books, in, in fact, that, that said, you know, the main thing we need to get out of negotiations is to uh, educate the Russians about nuclear deterrence. And I always thought that was incredibly naive, as well as being totally counterproductive, because the Russians had their own way of thinking about nuclear weapons, and it wasn't the way we thought. But to say that they didn't have a really serious way of thinking about it was uh, naivete and mirror imaging. To and, and I mean, Robert McNamara was asked in the early 1960s when he was laying out the plan for mutual assured destruction. He somebody asked him, "Well, how, what did the Russians say about this?" And he said, "I don't think the Russians have thought seriously about nuclear weapons." <laughs> And that was completely historically false because the Russians had a huge internal debate about nuclear weapons in the 1950s. And a RAND analyst named Herbert Dinnerstein wrote a, an, an exhaustive book about that Russian debate on what the nuclear revolution meant and it was published in 1959. Um, and we have no excuse for not understanding how the Russians think about nuclear weapons. I did my doctoral dissertation on Russian attitudes towards arms control. And then I turned that dissertation into a book that was the, the only book that is a book length history of the negotiation of the START Treaty. And the theme of the book was the Russians had a completely different agenda than we did in the START Treaty negotiations. And that was to preserve their first strike capability. And we had a completely different approach. And so I hammered on that thesis in, in, in different ways over the years. So as we're wrapping up time, I want to ask one, my final question here. Um, <clears throat> and uh, so as we think about, we, we reflect on New Start and the uh, the novel weapons that were sort of born of it, designed to circumvent. So we think about these arms control treaties uh, and and what they're really meant to do. What is the spirit of them? Right? It is about you know stability and and peace and and all of this kind of stuff. And then the Russians sign it in good faith, and maybe for a few years they're adhering to it in a way that we feel confident. But then they're building 
Poseidon torpedoes with, you know, 50 megaton warheads, um, uh, Skyfall nuclear uh, cruise missiles and uh, um, and uh, heavy Sarmat, um, you know, heavy throw weight, multi, multi-merv weapon systems, all clearly first strike kind of weapons. And, uh, and, and they'll use the excuse of our ballistic missile defense and how that, you know, doesn't assure them the free ride that they, you know, demand, uh, and these sorts of things, even though they have their own ballistic missile defense system. And that, again, that doesn't seem to be destabilizing, but ours is exactly. anyway, my point is, is that, um, uh, there's a history of this spiritual violation. You know, for example, the INF treaty, which was based on land-based cruise missiles, yet the Russians would base them on, on boats and barges on the Caspian sea, which were essentially the same thing as if they were sitting on trucks on the shoreline, which would be a treaty violator, but they're not when they're afloat on the Caspian sea. And, and I think it makes us look silly when we can't think through these other methodologies of how they want to circumvent the treaties, if we go forward into the 2030s with, with the goal of some new treaty and heaven knows what, what ransom we will pay to achieve something that will be bad, in my opinion, how are we going to, A, account for novel technologies, and B, how will we account for these novel methods of circumventing um, these treaties in new ways? So we have got to have a clear-eyed view of what arms control and nonproliferation can do for us and how it can support us. And we need a clear-eyed view of a strategy for going forward on that. And my, my argument, again, is that we have, we have no grounds for expecting any progress on this unless we start developing some negotiating leverage. Now, I would say that went the start outcome for which I wrote the book on and helped implement, we, we got more out of the start treaty than we had a right to expect hmm. given the disparities in our strategic forces. So what accounts for it? What accounts for the fact that we got so much out of the start treaty? And I say is SDI. It was the SDI program actually gave us substantial leverage. And I don't think the SDI program has get, gotten credit for yeah. the leverage that it got us. And I think we, I think we need to put new emphasis on missile defenses, not only because I think that promotes deterrence and extended deterrence, but I think that also puts us in a better and stronger negotiating position. Well, Adam, you want to wrap us up? I do want to ask one final question before we, before I do. So one of the things that uh, I think the arms control community is really good at is throwing out pejoratives that have never actually been defined. And so I, I'm often told that's destabilizing or that harms strategic stability. Carrie, can you define for me st- strategic stability or what it means to be destabilizing? Is, is there like a checklist or is there like a weighted metric that I can say, well, that's, you know, minus two in destabilizing? Because I don't know what, de- you know, stability is. I've never seen a definition. And, and is your definition the same as the Russians definition yeah, or exactly. the Chinese definition? So that, that's what I would say is we, 
we have a very nuanced understanding of what we mean by strategic stability, first strike stability, crisis stability, uh, deterrence stability. But the Russians have a completely different concept of strategic stability. And their concept is we shall intimidate the enemy into not even thinking about initiating a nuclear first strike. The Russians concluded long ago that whoever strikes first in a nuclear war is going to win that war. And their, their deterrence structure is based on intimidating their adversaries from even contemplating a first nuclear strike. So, and they do that with an overwhelming counterforce first strike capability. So what then is the definition of stability? The, the academic definition of stability is the lack of incentives to initiate a nuclear war. Okay. Okay. Well, you know, uh, sadly, we actually are out of time. And it's, uh, as with other times you and I have had a chance to, to chat, Carrie, it, there's always so much more that we want to talk about. And there's just, you know, more to say and more to discuss because... I don't really think about arms control and nonproliferation that often. So whenever I, and I, what I do hear, and I'm sure this is true of you, Curtis, is I usually hear the arms control community droning on and saying things that just to anybody who pays half a bit of attention is just patently untrue. And and leaves a donation. Yeah. Okay. We let me just put down a marker that we need to have a continuing conversation about what the new report on China's military affairs has, what the implications are of that for future arms control with the Chinese. Yes. Because I've spent several years uh, in a track two context working talking to the Chinese about future arms control, and, and so I can share some insights from that. Experience. Oh, we're gonna have to have you back. Well. Uh, listeners, you now know that next week's episode, we'll, we'll have Carrie Karchner back and we'll be talking specifically about the Chinese. So, so make sure you listen next week. Uh, so Carrie, thanks for volunteering to come back. Thanks, Carrie. Or at some near future. (laughs) No, 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 no. He might be busy. (laughs) Okay, gents, we got to do it. So. Carrie, thanks for joining us. Curtis, same to you. And to you, the listeners, of course, we want to say thanks for joining us on this episode of The Nuclear Review. And as always, we want to remind you to think deterrence. Thank you for listening to this week's The Nuclear View. We hope you found it engaging and valuable. The Nuclear View is released each Wednesday and is a production of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, a 501c3 organization. We are dependent upon donations to provide our podcasts. Every donation helps keep this and many other deterrence-related activities happening and helps to bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and of our national deterrence. We occasionally answer questions from our valued listeners. If you wish to send us questions on a topic, please send your email to asknids at thinkdeterrence.com. That's asknids, one word, the at symbol, and thinkdeterrence, one word, dot com. If you enjoyed this show, check out our other weekly podcast, Nuclear Knowledge. 
You can catch all of our podcasts at thinkdeterrence.com under the Deterrence Podcast tab. We thank our producer, Kimberly Charrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative nuclear view, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to always think deterrence.